0: years ago that Yuley has become the place it is today, uh, I would have called and arranged for an ambulance to pick you up and take you to the near psychiatric ward. Uh, it's crazy how much th- this area has grown, yet here we are. And I just want to say that it is a tremendous privilege to have been able to build a friendship with Pastor Mike over the past four and a half years. Uh, it was a privilege to be a member of this church uh, for two years as Brittany and I sought to determine God's will for our lives and in a period coming right out of, of seminary uh, and it was a privilege during that time to have worked alongside Pastor Chris Oglesby, a guy I just grew to love and, and it was a privilege to have gotten to know so many of you and even since then it has been a privilege to have gotten to know Pastor Dan and, and it is just, uh, it's been a blessing for sure. Now I, the only one I don't know that well is Nick, uh, Nick was coming in as I was going out Uh, But I'm pretty sure if the Lord would have us uh, here, I will be calling him at least once a week to serenade my family to sleep, uh, because that guy, that guy can sing. Um, But all jokes aside, I I love this church. Uh, I love the staff of this church. I love the vision of this church. Your emphasis on making disciples who, in turn, make more uh, disciples—not just in Yulee, not just across the United States, but across the globe. Uh, And regardless of what happens today, I look forward to seeing what God is going to continue to do as he expands his kingdom with the help of a church like Mercy Hill. Uh, Just to give you a little bit of an update of where we've been, for almost three years my family and I have lived in southwest Georgia in a place called Arlington. Uh, We've made many friendships there. We've made many memories and we've seen the Lord do a tremendous work. Uh, And over the course of time, we actually had a couple of opportunities to leave, but we never felt good. We didn't feel like it was what the Lord wanted us to do. We just really felt like God wanted us to stay in Arlington. And so just a few months ago, that began to change. Not because of any conflicts, believe it or not, first-time pastor. We just just didn't have many conflicts, which is almost unheard of. Uh, You can ask your pastor about that for sure. Uh, But we were really blessed there. But all of a sudden, we began to get this kind of just stirring inside of, maybe God is, is, is preparing to do something else. Maybe he's, can, maybe he's getting ready to, to send us somewhere. And so we really just began to pray. We, we weren't sure what to do. We didn't put out resumes. We didn't make any phone calls to pastor friends of, hey, what should we do? We just prayed. God, what is it that you want us to do? And it was about a month in of those prayers that Mike began to call and, and he shared with me something that we had kind of talked about joking and just casually over about a year. Man, wouldn't it be great to, to get to come back to Nassau County and, and, and work with each other and be able to, to just do more at, at Mercy Hill. And, and so I remember as he says, look, we want to get this ball rolling. We actually, I've talked with the elders and this is something we're looking at doing. I remember saying to him, listen, I got to be really careful. Like, I don't want to do this out of convenience. I don't want to do this because I love Nassau County. I don't want to do this because it would be fantastic to be close to family and friends. It would be fantastic to be close to the beach again. We would be excited about those things. But it would not be a good thing to be outside the will of God. So we want to make sure that we are very cautious. With a decision like this. And so we had uh, more conversations. We met with the elders. And it has been a blessing to see how the doors have begun to open. And just as I said before and now I say again. Here we are. Seeing if this is a door that the Lord would open. Now as I began to prepare for this message. There were a variety of, of passages that I could have chose from. There was one that really stuck out to me. And it's found in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles I invite you to turn there. 1 Timothy 1 is where we're going to look at, and we're going to fix our attention specifically on verses 12 through 17. 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17, it's a familiar passage. It's a passage where the gospel is communicated so clearly, a passage where the gospel is communicated so beautifully. But it's also one that is very special to me. Because I'm convinced with with a passage like this that it provides the foundation by which not only Mercy Hill... But churches across the globe should be compelled not only to know more about God, and not only to defend their faith, but that they should be compelled to take this wonderful gospel that is mind-blowing to the world and send it to the nations. It's something that we must do. And I believe that it is such a great launch pad to do missions and to pursue those who are desperately in need of Christ. So if you are able, as we read God's Word, please stand with me. Verse 12, Paul continues writing to Timothy, and he writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now listen to verse 15. This is fantastic. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, because of that, verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there is no question a gospel like this should just knock us off our feet. Father, it is my prayer this morning that we would never lose sight of the awe and wonder of you, a God that in the midst of your holiness, in the midst of your justice, that you would display mercy and grace and pursue the worst of sinners. So, Father, I pray this morning that this would not simply be something that we could just allow to remain in our hearts, but it's something that could compel us to not only know more about you, but to take this message and to spread it across the globe for your glory, because, Father, we know that you and you alone are worthy. So, Father, may your spirit move freely in this service. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we ask all of these things. Amen. You may be seated. On May 2nd... 2011, one of the world's most violent terrorists, a man by the name of Osama bin Laden, had been found and he had been killed. Known as the mastermind behind the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001, bin Laden sought to inflict pain on any person or any nation that did not share his view of pursuing what he believed to be the purest form of Islam. With hopes of forming a single Islamic state, Bin Laden viewed it necessary to wage war against any person, especially Westerners who sought to influence the Middle East against this ideology. And so as a result of this, he established a terrorist organization known as Al-Qaeda. He eventually would carry out attacks not only on U.S. soil, but to Westerners in Yemen, and Kenya, and Tanzania, and Nepal... And even if you were thought to be an ally of the West, you were not exempt from attack, which obviously is what led to the Egyptian president almost being assassinated in 1995. This was all because of bin Laden. And all of these acts were done in the name of Allah. They were all done because bin Laden was convinced that he was doing God's work. Of course, as we know, thanks be to the true God, justice was finally carried out on May 2nd, and he met the true God. But I want you to imagine for a moment if things went differently on May 2nd. I want you to imagine for a moment turning on your televisions not to see people in the streets celebrating over the death of this man but instead seeing a camera actually going into a cave where Bin Laden was and rather than him hurling out insults towards the west he said something has changed. I saw the resurrected Savior. How would you feel? Imagine watching this on television and hearing that not only had he saw the resurrected Savior, but that he had been commissioned to take this gospel that he had been transformed by and to take it out to the nations. And in the days that would carry on, he would eventually admit of all of his wrongdoing, he would be sent to, let's say, a place like Guantanamo Bay, and there he would be commissioned to preach the gospel to other violent terrorists with hopes that they would come to a saving faith in Christ. What would be going through your mind? For some, you probably wouldn't buy it. Right? For Some of you may think, this, this seems sketchy, but others would be changed by it. And even as time would progress, as he would write letters to the churches. People would read these letters all across the globe. And they would be impacted by this man who was once a terrorist who had been transformed by Jesus. This analogy sounds kind of extreme, this hypothetical situation. But this is what happened to the Apostle Paul. This is what happened to, to a man who wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. You see, like Bin Laden... Paul hated the thought of anyone tainting the purest form of Judaism. In fact, in Acts chapter 26, as he's standing before King Agrippa to give his testimony, he says that he thought that it was vitally important to wreak havoc on anyone who would claim this name of Jesus Christ. They were viewed as a threat. So he was a member of the Pharisees. He's pursuing those who loved Jesus. He viewed them as a direct threat towards Judaism, but as we all know, we know the rest of the story, right? We know what happens as he continues to carry out this mission, not just in Israel, but across uh, the known world at that time, that as he's traveling towards Damascus, something happens. He sees the resurrected Savior. He says in verse 13 that a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shined around him. A voice cried out, Saul, why are you persecuting me? For I am Jesus And I'm appearing to you for this reason, he says, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you've seen and will see of me. And this man, who who ripped families apart, changes the world for Christ. Not only does he change the world for Christ, but he is responsible. God uses him as the instrument to bring more people to salvation. He was the influence on men like St. Augustine coming to faith in Christ. He was the influence on men like Martin Luther and even John Wesley. So the question that I have this morning is, is what causes a man leading towards a path of destruction to all of a sudden change? What causes a man to, instead of pursuing wickedness, causes a man to pursue holiness and to become obedient to Jesus Christ? Well, we know the story, don't we? We know that it has nothing to do with with a change of heart, that you don't just wake up one day and decide that you're going to change your ways. It's not, we know, especially from Paul's perspective, it's not that he found some girl that he wanted to impress. Instead, what we know when it comes to the gospel is it's solely done by Jesus Christ, mercy given to the worst of sinners. So that's what I want us to talk about this morning. Mercy to the worst of sinners. Now here's what I want us to do before we flesh out this text. I want to deal with the surrounding context because it will make more sense as you're understanding what's going on. Most of you probably know that Paul is writing this letter to a young pastor by the name of Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of the church of Ephesus probably at this point, And he just pours into Timothy. And what's interesting about the text is it begins in verse 3 is he doesn't start out by fleshing out some argument on how a pastor should conduct worship. He doesn't begin uh, this letter by, by saying, listen, this is the roles of men and women when it comes in the church. Instead, what he does, beginning in verse 3, is he says, I want to make sure you're preaching the word. I want to make sure you're defending the sound doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to fight against these false teachers right out of the gate he says this is what you should be doing what is it that the false teachers are, are are preaching in this congregation well they are suggesting that in order to obtain salvation all you've got to do is adhere to the law if you do all of these things and you don't do all of these things then you will find favor from God and Paul says if the congregation if the people of God begin embracing this they will become stagnant in their faith they will think it's all about them In verses 6 through 11, as he continues, he begins to say, listen, it's important for you to understand. The law is a good thing if it's used correctly. Because what the law ultimately shows people is that in and of themselves, by themselves, they can't come to God. Instead, what the law does is it exposes people to how wicked they are. That they can never be made right with God on their own. What the law says is that someone else needs to do it. Now, what's the motive behind all of this? Why would Paul say, Timothy, you make sure to defend the faith? Is it just to make them smart? Is it just to make them be able to just look like a boss on Facebook and just own somebody in the comment section? Or is it something different? Well, we ultimately see what it is, and it's really found in verse 5. He says, the aim of this charge is love. This is why the pastor Is called to preach solid doctrine. This is why the pastor is called to not only be a person who has a vision of being a sending church, which is a great thing, but also being a church where you equip people with the understanding, the depths of God himself in this wonderful, true gospel. You do all of this, not because of bragging rights, but because you love these people. And then he comes to verse 12. And I love beginning in verse 12. Because what Paul does here is he provides Timothy not with an intellectual argument concerning the difference between the law versus a a, a theology of Christ, but instead he simply gives him what? His personal testimony. He says, "I, I could give you the intellectual argument, but I want you to hear from me how I myself know that you can't obtain it on your own. I want you to hear from me what happened and so that's where we find ourselves here in verse 12. So if we're, if we're fleshing this out in points, the first point is very simple. In order for the worst of sinners to receive mercy, they must first recognize that salvation comes strictly from Jesus Christ. That Christ is the source of our salvation. That's the number one point. Christ is the only source for our salvation. Look at verse 12. Paul says, I think Christ Jesus who has given me what? strength. It was giving me strength. You see, here's what's important for us to understand. Salvation is not simply praying a prayer, walking an aisle, and getting dunked in a baptistry. Salvation is something that drastically changes a person from the inside out to where their life is transformed. As the Holy Spirit fills this person, they're now being more and more conformed to the image of Christ, and they have the ability, not on their own, but because of the strength of Jesus to pursue him and to see how much better he truly is, just as we sung this morning, not because of anything they've done, but because of Christ who's given them that strength. Do you understand that? you see how important that is? You cannot persevere in this life. You can't keep your eyes fixed on Christ in the darkest days on your own. It is solely because of Jesus. Paul says, I think Jesus that it was him who gave me the strength to recognize, I can't do it on my own. You know, being a pastor in Arlington, I've buried a lot of people. Uh, over three years, we've had 19 funerals. And I've done most of those funerals. But the one thing that is always amazing to me is that at people's lowest points, as a spouse is required to bury her husband, or as a brother is required to bury another brother, or as a friend is required to bury another friend, to be able to talk to some of these people and not see them as being people who are angry with God, but instead people who still love Jesus in their lowest moment. It is amazing to me. It's amazing to me as I had one young widow who had a very young husband who died of a massive heart attack. Boom, like that. he was gone. And she was required to bury him, and as he left not only her, but he left his two daughters behind, that on that morning, as I was getting ready to preach this funeral, she comes up, gives me a hug, and she whispers in my ear, listen, there's a lot of people who are going to be in this church who will never come back to church. There are a lot of people in this church who, who have no desire for Christianity, so you preach the gospel. What causes someone to have the strength to do that? What causes someone to be able to say in the midst of all my sorrows, Jesus is better. Jesus. Right? And so Paul says, I am blown away that he's given me the strength to do this. That he's considered me faithful to actually go out and spread this gospel and to actually be beaten and left for dead. I am so grateful to God that he is the one who's done All of this. And then this is where we find ourselves with the second point, verses 13 through 15. Because this is even better. As he is shocked by the fact that it is Christ who has been responsible for his strength, that it's Christ who's been responsible for his salvation. What we also see here in verses 13 through 15, second point, is that Christ also pursues the unlikeliest of people for salvation. Paul says with verse 12: I'm blown away. By what Jesus has commissioned me to do. Why? Verse 13. Because I was a blasphemer. Because I was a persecutor. Because I was a violent, arrogant man. And in the midst of all of that, God says, I'm still going to pursue you anyways. Isn't that amazing? Paul says, I was a blasphemer. What, What is a blasphemer? So you have this guy. I mean, all of you, I'm sure, are pretty familiar with this who actually goes out into villages and into known cities, and he is forcing Christians to deny that Jesus is Christ. This is a blasphemer who is actually going out into cities, and he is pulling husbands from their wives. He is pulling wives from their children, and he's getting them to deny that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He's forcing them to do it. This is a guy who would have absolutely 100% approved of the killing of Timothy's mother and grandmother who were influencers in Timothy's faith. He's a violent man, so violent that according to Acts chapter 9, verse 26, when he comes to faith in Christ, the disciples are like, I don't know about this dude. <laughs> like, I, I don't know if we should accept this guy. What if it's a trick? Like, What if he's just trying to mess us up? They're slow to accept him because of how violent he is. This is the guy who when the first... Christian is killed after Christ. What's his name? Anybody remember? Stephen. That Paul is standing there. And as the people are getting ready to execute Stephen, Paul says, hey guys, listen, I notice when you're trying to throw rocks at him, you're not being able to get good form. Why don't you take your jacket off and let me hold it? Now wind up and throw that rock at Stephen. Paul says, I was a blasphemer. I was a violent man. I persecuted Christians. I wreaked havoc on people's lives. I was arrogant in my faith. And yet, what happens? The grace of Christ just overflows my life. Is that not good news? Because although I'm hoping nobody in here has killed Christians, all of us have this same testimony of not being people who have it all together, but being people who acted in ignorance and unbelief prior to coming to saving faith, right? We are people, as Paul would earlier say to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in our sins, we're by nature children of wrath. It's the same Paul who would say in 1 Corinthians 2 that the natural man can't understand the things of God. Why? Because they must be spiritually discerned. And in the midst of all of that, God would still say, even though you have unbelief, even though you are going against what I would want you to do, I'm still going to pursue you. I'm still going to do it. There was a study that just came out just recently on legionnaire Ministries. Some of you may have saw it, the, the state of theology uh, statistics that came out. And one of the things that they interviewed evangelicals on was, when it comes to small sins, d- does God take these sins Serious. More evangelicals than not said no. No, he doesn't. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. What caused sin to enter into creation? What was the sin? Eating from the wrong tree. What caused Satan to be removed from heaven? Did he kill anybody? No. Pride. Which tells us, that God takes the smallest sin absolutely, 100%, very serious, so much so that he had the right to wipe us off the face of the earth. Why? Because when we find ourselves, even in the smallest sins, doing what God says not, it's not about a tree. It's not about the pride. It's about the fact that we have willfully chosen to rebel against the creator of the universe. So God had every right to kill Paul. God had every right to kill all of us. But instead of doing it, he goes on a search and rescue mission, not for a particular people who have it all together, not for white people or black people or people who are in a certain tax bracket or a Republican or a Democrat. Christ came to save who? Sinners. Paul says, of whom I'm the worst. And because of this, that grace just poured out. It didn't trickle down. It poured out so much so that as it overflowed, it began to affect other people. How many of you, in the midst of being saved by this glorious God who had the right to kill you, who had the right to kill me, is so radically changed that people say, my goodness, this grace that he or she has received is not only affecting him, it's even affecting me. Who is this God that you serve? Who is this God that you love? This is the reason why we long to know more. This is the reason why we want to dig deep in theology. This is the reason why we want to defend the faith. And this is the reason, most importantly, why we take this message and we go as far as the eye can see, even further than that, right? So that people will come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because Christ comes to save people who are jacked up. <laughs> Isn't that good? Maybe I should not have said that. <laughs> Is it okay? Okay. okay. Some of you here this morning maybe think to yourselves, I've done too much. Like I, I need to clean up my life before I can actually come to Christ. Listen to me. There is no sin too great that the cross of Christ can't cover. You kill Christians? You slaughter them? You rip them away from their families? Well, Christ saved that dude. So surely then he can save you. Christ pursues the unlikeliest of people for salvation. But notice last, and this is with verses 16 through 17. Not only is Christ the source of our salvation, not only does he pursue the unlikeliest of people for our salvation, but notice with me last. Christ has a purpose for our salvation, and boy, is it good. Look at verse 16. In verse 16, he says, I received mercy for this reason. Here it is. That in me, as the foremost, that is, as the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. What this tells us when it comes to the purpose of salvation is that number one, Salvation is not simply meant to get you out of hell. Salvation is not simply meant to make you now have your best life now. What the reason, the primary purpose of salvation is, is so that Christ would be all the more glorified. It's all about Christ. It is the reason why we have been saved. It's the reason why we're conformed more to the image of Jesus. So that we would make more people go, Who is this guy that would save? Who is this God who would pursue these people? It is for the glory of Christ alone. And that is what compels us to do missions. Not to look good in front of a denomination. Not to brag before any other church in this association. But instead to say, we believe without a shadow of a doubt that Christ came to save sinners. And in light of that, as we share it, it's going to bring more glory to Him. With our changed lives, it's going to make Him just look even better. Not because of anything we did on our own, but because of solely what Christ has done for us. And for that... Reason, Paul says to the king, immortal, invisible, be honor and glory. Is that not good? I Many is my prayer this morning. There may be some of you here this morning who are waiting to clean up your life. Maybe there's some of you here this morning who've prayed the prayer, who've walked an aisle, who has the certificate to prove that you've been dunked in the baptistry, but there's not been an ounce of change in your life. Maybe this morning you find yourself in a place where you just lost sight of the wonder of the gospel. But I would urge you this morning, come to faith in Christ. Maybe this morning you are a believer and you have just found yourselves in a rut. Maybe you have sought to to pursue everything that you think would bring you joy, whether it's your job or your family or, or moving to a new location, and you're convinced that that is what would bring you happiness, only to find out that there's still something that is just tugging on you, letting you know it's not about those things. Maybe this morning you need to come back to the all and wonder of the gospel. If that's you, I would urge you, repent, ask Christ to give you that strength back, and the word says he will. We can never, as Christians, lose sight of the wonderful, simple phrase, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's the greatest news we could ever hear. So let's be changed by it. Let's be compelled to go by it. And let's do this for he and he alone is worthy. Amen? Amen? Let's pray.